Today's scripture is from Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of even envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here, uh, and it's good to see you this morning. We continue in a series in the book of Romans. One of the reasons why we do our preaching like this, where we take books and uh, we go you know, verse by verse, pretty much, at least passage by passage, uh, is because we know it's good for us to, re- part, one of the reasons anyway, is because we know it's good for us to wrestle with parts of the scripture that we would rather just not wrestle with, at least not publicly. This is for sure one of those passages. Uh, you could feel, you could feel in, in Helen's voice just the weightiness. This is, this is a very heavy, uh, very hard passage. So much so that I meant this week and I didn't, and then I found it this morning, I said, are you okay to read? Are you okay to read these things? I mean, this is just so... So hard. Now, and, if, and, if I, and if I feel the need to ask about reading the passage, imagine, imagine how we get up here and have some 30 minutes worth of stuff to talk about. And so I feel the weight of that. I feel, I feel, um, I feel the burden of that. But it's good for us where we would just want to jump over, ignore, go somewhere else, do, you know, um, not deal with the really hard, controversial, cultural, hot topic type things. Here we are. It's where God has us this morning. And so let's, uh, let's look at this together, uh, and I, w- I want to just say first that, that this part of Romans 1 is Paul's commentary on, on the story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So the themes here, which is pretty obvious, are 
sin and God's wrath against sin. And so in order to receive the gospel, which is Paul's ultimate aim, it's going to take him a while, all the way to 320, chapter 3, verse 20, to really get back to the good news that he's just expressed in verses 16 and 17 of this chapter. But the reason he takes such an extended period of time to go through some of these harder things is because in order to receive the good news of the gospel, you have to hear the bad news first. In order to be healed properly, you have to first get a proper diagnosis. And I said last week that most, uh, most people don't get serious about a prescription for health until they experience some kind of physical trauma. And it wakes them up to the reality of their physical unhealth and weakness. They, and then you'll see when the stroke hits or when a heart attack comes or when a, a very bad diagnosis happens, then all of a sudden there's this desire for health. Paul is trying to inflict a spiritual trauma on our souls to show us that we're in real trouble in order to wake us up to the real reality of what's going on in our lives so that we'll reach out for the cure. We don't need cholesterol pills in a yearly checkup. We need a heart transplant. There's something desperately wrong inside of us. And so Paul's methodology is to probe into that, to get us to be honest, and to look outside of ourselves. This is, this is what he's doing. Now, we read the story of the rich young ruler this past week, and I was struck. And I hope you're reading community Bible reading with us. But I was struck as this, this young man comes looking for eternal life. Uh, he comes to Jesus looking for eternal life and assuming that it was his doing that would get it for him. Do you remember? Do you remember this? How he asks this and then what Jesus' strategy is. Jesus says, you know, he asks him about the Ten Commandments, and the young man's bold enough to claim to have kept them all for the better part of his life. And so you see, if the kingdom of God was a matter of doing, then he felt good about his chances. But what's amazing there as you read that story is that Jesus doesn't commend this young man. He's obviously very successful, very moral. He's, he's always kept all the rules and so forth, but, but he doesn't get a condemnation as he expects. Jesus doesn't congratulate him. Uh, the man assumed that his good deeds were his greatest asset. Jesus knew the truth, that they were, in fact, a liability. So what he did was is he gave him an, an additional command. He gave him an additional test. He said, I want you to go and sell everything and give it to the poor. And that, the reason Jesus pointed him in that direction is because he knew that that was the thing that he couldn't do. He claimed that he could do everything else. That was the one thing that he couldn't do. And so he walked away. And what, what happened in that little encounter there was that Jesus took away the man's righteousness. He, he was leading him to eternal life, which we know is not a matter of behaving but believing. But in order to believe the gospel, you have to first stop relying on yourself, which is what his problem was, you know, I've done all of those things. There's nothing you can ask me to do that I haven't considered and already put effort into. In order to believe the gospel, you have to stop relying on yourself so that you look outside of yourself to the work of Jesus for help. That's the movement Paul's trying to affect here. He's taking away our righteousness so that we'll stop trusting in ourselves. That's what Romans 1.18 all the way to 3.20 is all about. And he does it here at the beginning... You look in verse 18, by introducing this topic, the wrath of God. And we really need, like, when, when you even say that, what would, what would have been really effective is if we have, like, the Jaws soundtrack in the background or something like that as we, you know. But then we'd probably start doing the gator chomp, and I would lose my mind over that, and so we can't do that. 
But there needs to be some threatening soundtrack. Doom, doom, doom. We say that because that is the feel of those words, the wrath of God. That the whole human race is on a collision course with this, this concept of the wrath of God that Paul brings out here. Not only on Judgment Day, here's what we're going to see this morning, but even now we are experiencing, we are under his wrath, though we might not even know it. Now here's an amazing thing. I don't really have an outline this morning because I couldn't come up with a good one. I'm a big outline guy. I gave you a couple points there in your in your uh, in your worship folder, but I just want to try to walk through uh, what you see here of how Paul describes the escalation of sin in the world of his, his day, and you know the Bible talks to our day as well, so we see it replaying itself in our day as well. And then God's response, His coming against all of that in wrath, and what Paul means by that, and then and then a little bit about you know, what, what should a response from us be as well? So no structured outline. Let's just walk through the passage together, okay? Because there's important things for us to see here. So look here, beginning in verse 18 with me again, and I want you to see that this is the story of mankind. These verses are a picture of the human heart, but also a description of human society, what the Bible calls the world, which means something like organized corporate rebellion against God. Psalm 2, if you're familiar with that text, talks about the raging of the nations and the plotting of the peoples against the Lord and his anointed to break his chains and to rid themselves of him once and for all. Some pretty awful stuff that, that is pictured here for us. And so let's just ask some questions of the text, because I think the first thing we see is it gives us some insight into where it all comes from. Where does everything that Paul goes on to say down towards the end of this chapter, where does it begin? Where does it really come from? And Paul says that the problem is that we know God, but we keep acting like we don't know him. Everywhere we look, we saw this last week, everywhere we look, we see his power and divinity. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 says. They scream to us that God is there and we feel the weight of him. I mean, look down at verse 32. Paul says that we all know God's decree that those who practice such things, what things? The such things there are all the things in verses 29 through 31 that he lists, that long list, that that though we know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. I mean, what a fascinating claim. I mean, think about that just for just a minute. Paul is saying that no matter who you are, It doesn't matter if you are a person of faith or if you claim to not believe or to not know what you believe. No matter who you are, what Paul claims, what the scripture claims is that you possess an internal moral compass that tells you what is right and what is wrong. More than that, you know that those who do wrong are liable to judgment, that God's law is not just words in a 2,000-year-old book that can be so easily dismissed. In chapter 2, verse 15, he's going to say, no, the law of God is written on our hearts. And so the problem is that we are constantly, verse 18, suppressing the truth of God's reality. And I used, again last week, the, the analogy of a beach ball, trying to keep a beach ball underwater. If you've ever seen kids playing in a pool and trying to keep a ball that's been inflated, and you use all of your weight and your energy to push it down, and no matter what you do, eventually you lose your balance or so forth, and it pops back up because uh, it wants to get back up to the surface. And it's a beautiful, I mean, it's a, it's a great analogy and illustration of what Paul's saying here. There's a parallel phrase. 
Verse 25, he says, the problem is at its root that they exchange the truth about God for a lie. He's talking about the world. He's saying the world we live in, the unbelieving world in which we're a part of, is constantly exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Well, what lie? And the lie is that I can decide for myself what's right and what's wrong. That I can bend reality to my will. That I can be subject to no one and require everyone, even the truth itself, to be subject to me. This is what is really at stake. Because if God is there, and again, remember the heavens are screaming the fact that he's there. The internal testimony of the, of the, of the law of God is telling us he's there and that, we're, that we've sinned against him. If he's there, then he is not subject to me. I'm subject to him. He owes me nothing. I owe him everything. If, if God is really there, then there is a reality that is fixed, that cannot be changed, and it doesn't have to come into alignment with my wishes and desires. I, instead, have to come in alignment with it. And so, a principle, just this, that human flourishing, use whatever word you want to, that's my word, happiness, fulfillment, Freedom, joy, human flourishing is not self-expression. It's rather self-denial. You don't have to experiment to find happiness. You have to submit. You can feel the weight of that, right? I mean, what, what ultimately that's calling us to? I mean, we're talking about the sin of the garden here. The tree, the man and the woman ate. Do you remember what it was called? Anybody? You can talk. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Nothing was off limits to them except the right to decide for themselves between right and wrong. They had to live under God's revelation. And God said, this will destroy you. God said, don't eat it. If, if you eat that, if you go there, if you decide on that, it's going to absolutely wipe you out. And, of course, the man and the woman decided that it was the one thing they couldn't live without. They did not want to live in a world of someone else's making. And neither do we. And so notice the language that pops up in the text. Look, I'm, I'm thinking of verse 26. And we're going to come back to this and the issue of sexuality in just a few minutes. Hang on. But for now, just notice this language, verse 26, of natural and then contrary to, to nature there in the text. What, what that language is saying to us is that there is an objective reality. There is a design. God has made the world. He has made it to function in a certain way. And that's what those words mean. You put gas in a car and it runs. You put milk in the gas tank and it breaks down. And this is just the way things are. Well, what's the outcome of all of this then? If, if at, the, if, if at the, the bottom, if where it begins is this desire to, to bend even reality itself to the desire of my own will, what's the outcome? What does this lead to? The text also has something to say about this. Think about what Paul's saying. He's saying the reality of God is there, but we're constantly trying to push down what we know to be true and believe instead in lies. Think about, we're pushing down what we know to be true, and we're constantly convincing ourselves to align our life with things we know not to be the truth. I mean, think of the psychological damage that that, that, that must cause, to constantly be denying what you know to be true. How much emotional energy 
do you think that takes? And what is the result? Well, according to the apostle, verse 29, the, the result is a debased mind. And what that, what that phrase means, it, it literally means you lose your mind. But the result of this is, is you lose the ability to distinguish good from evil. The word in, in, in the phrase is contrasted with the word knowledge earlier in the verse. You can see it there, which refers to wisdom or practical and applied knowledge of something. So a debased mind, in contrast, is one that loses the ability to think well and make good decisions. And so an irrational thought process takes over. If you want, a, if you want an analogy, think of spiritual vertigo. Have you ever suffered from vertigo? Uh, my dad my dad has suffered from vertigo, and I'm pretty much his mini-me, and so I know it's a part of my future. And I already have these episodes where you, 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 you move, you know, you're laying down, and you get up a little bit too quickly, and then literally everything just starts to spin. It's, it's disorienting, and it's debilitating. Dizziness, you know, disorientation. You can't tell up from down. You can't, you can't, you know, you, you literally fall down because you can't keep your balance. And this is what Paul's saying is happening, this resulting in moral confusion and inconsistency. And, and this is probably the best way to describe what we're facing as a culture, this absolute subjectivity, that there is, we say, you know, no absolute truth. There's my truth and there's your truth. And they may be very different from one another, but can I ask a question? If your truth and my truth are different, can you recognize the logical inconsistency there? If my truth and your truth are different, then they can't both be truth. One of us has to be wrong. I mean, it's a system that doesn't work, this one that we're engrossed in. Saying there is no truth, can I be honest with you, my experience with those who say there is no truth, it's just a way of, ins of, ins of insulating me from the claims of your truth while demanding your absolute agreement with my truth. That's what it feels like. Think about that again. Should I say that again? <laughs> That's deep. A lot of the time when we say there is no truth, I think what we mean is um, you can't question my truth, but I have every right to think you're dumb for your truth. Let me put it, let me just put it that way. And so it leads to self-deception, inconsistency, irrationality, confusion. And maybe more than anywhere else, maybe more than anywhere else, I think we see this in the current cultural conversation regarding sexual orientation, which is obviously an issue in this passage. Uh, there is, a, you know, it's here. There is an obvious verses 26 and 27 reference to homosexuality here. And so to be faithful to the text, we have to talk about this a little bit. However, to be faithful to the text, we need to admit that this is not a passage about that particular sin. It's a passage about all sin with particular emphasis on this particular sexual sin because of the way it so clearly reflects the dynamics of sin in general. And so I want to I do this very briefly. This is kind of an excursus, what the, what the old, you know, the old English guys used to call an excursus. We're going to kind of take time out and talk about this for just a minute, but only for a couple of minutes. And I hope to lead you in maybe some ways that we can think about how to deal with these things better as we confront them in our culture. And the first thing I would say to you is that as we, as we venture into this topic, we need to acknowledge how painful the subject is for many and the need to be sensitive and compassionate first. 
we should not yell and scream and point fingers as we dive into these things. There's a lot of shame with this topic. Shame creates strong feelings and fears, and we should use great caution and wisdom. And my prayer for our church is that our friends and our loved ones who struggle with same-sex attraction would experience our compassion and our welcome first before we try to express any disagreement so that when we begin to talk about these things, it is in the context of hospitality and friendship. A gay couple walked into our office two weeks ago because, just, off, just off the street because they've been turned away from a number of churches in our community. And their question, the lead question was, would we, would we be welcome here? Our answer was, absolutely. We'd love to have you here with us. Because love is always the goal. Always truth and love, but sometimes love needs to come before truth. And I think that's the case here as well. But secondly, we need to compassionately and truthfully say that we believe that the Bible is God's revelation, that it doesn't always make sense to us, and it doesn't always align with our desires and preferences, and that this passage in particular, and we believe other places in the scriptures, teach that homosexuality is not the way of human flourishing, that it's a violation of God's design and therefore an expression of ungodliness and unrighteousness. It is a failure to properly honor and reverence God and a failure to love neighbor. Third, we need to admit that Christians have wrongly allowed for a hierarchy of sins to develop with sexual sin, especially this particular sexual sin on the top of the pyramid. Now, I'm going to say, this is going to sound really harsh. This is where I'm going to be really harsh, okay? And say that if you confess sexual sin in the church, we'll shun you. If you confess greed or if you confess to having control issues, we'll make you a leader. And that's a problem. It's a really big problem. We do not treat all sins the same, and the outrage about sexual sin among Christians has more to do with culture wars and politics than it does with the scriptures, and we should be ashamed of that. It's a big problem. It's confusing to people not in the faith, and it contributes to the feeling of condemnation and alienation that same-sex attracted people feel from the church. Fourth, the fourth thing we need to do is then to acknowledge that we can't talk about this issue the same way we talk about other sins. It's far more complicated and nuanced of a subject. And to be honest, this is the absolute worst format I can imagine to try to have this conversation. Because of course it isn't a conversation. I'm the only one talking, which means you're all gonna go away with really strong opinions about the things that I've said. And I get to not have any Q&A with you and dialogue and that's just really, really hard, but it's what we have to do this morning be much better in small groups or one-on-one so come and talk to me but the reason it is so complicated is because the dominant cultural ideology wrongly mingles sexuality with identity I wish we had time to go into this we don't this morning maybe we'll come back to it one day but just to say this if we simply say homosexuality is wrong what same-sex attracted people hear is who I am is wrong and that's why it's so offensive if you confront someone about their anger that doesn't feel personal. With this issue, it is. And so it's one thing for someone to hear, you need to change your behavior. It's something completely different for them to hear, you need to change who you are at your core. And so it requires a different kind of conversation. Fifth, I think we need to insist upon the issue. 
And here is the issue as I see it in regards to these things. The Bible challenges the assumption that sexual orientation and identity are connected. Sexual orientation is not a category of personhood. Sexuality is something you do, not something you are. Our identity is exclusively as male and female image bearers of the holy God. And Christians who come against sexual sin are not coming against the people guilty of those sins. They're coming against the actions of those people that are hardening their humanity. And that perhaps is the hardest part. It's where we cannot agree, where one side must give way to the other. But if we don't make sure the conversation gets below the surface to these issues, we will do more harm than good. If I could use bigger words to just capture what I'm trying to say here, the real issue regarding this topic both in the culture and in the church and where the church should be leading the culture is this is an issue of epistemology not morality this is a larger issue of how do we how do we know what we know how how do we believe, how do we define categories of truth and untruth it's not a de- it's definitely not a conversation about identity and personhood and so we got to make sure we have the right conversation and we assist upon the right issues but lastly let me just say this as we deal with people that we love that are in the grips of 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 this, of this sin, we must insist upon repentance, but it must be the right repentance. Repentance literally means to change your mind. It means to believe differently about something until you begin to behave differently. So how should we think differently about these things? Well, to begin with, to say sexuality and sexual orientation is not subjective. There is objective reality. What I feel inside may, may seem more real than what God says, And therefore, I come to the conclusion that what God says can't be true. But Romans 1 must mean something other than what what it clearly means, you know, we might say. Because what is most true is what I feel, and this is the problem. My experience, my truth. that's, That's where we are. And to think differently then begins simply with saying, I'm going to live as if what God says is more real than what I feel. God says this is killing me. I mean, by the way, this is true of all sin. God says this is killing me. It might feel good, but just because it feels good doesn't mean it is good for me. And I may never stop feeling this way, but I can stop acting on my feelings instead and act on his commandments in replacement of that because he gets to decide what my flourishing looks like and not me. That's repentance. That's beautiful repentance. It's repentance for all of us. And change will eventually come. But in every battle against sin, change is hard fought and slow and incremental and ultimately not final, not until Jesus comes again. You with me? Can you feel the need to be very, very careful here? The issue we're confronting is not the issue of same-sex attraction. The issue we're confronting is subjectivism. It's the supremacy of feelings over truth. Go back to those words again, natural and contrary to nature there, we would say that those words speak to design. They're terms that describe absolutism, that there is a right way and a wrong way when it comes to just about everything. However, commentators that try to argue against the clear teaching of the text, do, they do strange things here. They subjectify these categories. They say what Paul means here, and this is just an illustration of the kind of thing I'm talking about, that Paul must mean that whatever's most natural to you, my, in other words, my natural, my natural and and what is against my natural inclinations and instincts so sin is therefore redefined as to act against what feels most right so this is literally the way this gets tra- this this gets interpreted so if you're heterosexual then same sex um 
sexual experiences are actually sinful because naturally you're heterosexual. But if you are same-sex attracted, if you are naturally gay and homosexual, then if, if what feels natural to you is attraction to the same sex, then that is good and not sinful. It matters what, it matters what internally it feels most natural to you. That's the argument. Natural and unnatural are personal subjective realities. And I just need to say, I think that is the complete opposite of what Paul is trying to get across here in the text. It's actually the opposite. What happens is this begins to snowball. Paul has described how we are constantly suppressing the truth and therefore losing our ability to distinguish between right and wrong, which in turn creates an atmosphere of rampant idolatry and reckless out-of-control immorality. As this passage begins to escalate, the language is stark. It's the lusts of the heart running wild into all kinds of wickedness, verse 24, or what Paul calls in verse 26, dishonorable passions. And so John Piper, in a sermon on this text, said it so powerfully, and he, he did a lot of yelling, which I'm trying not to do this morning. And I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said, he said it this way. He said, the universe of your soul was made to have the glory of God as its center, with all of the planets of your passions orbiting in their proper place, held there by the gravity of the glory of God, This text says that we, verse 25, exchange the glory of God for lies, for idols. This is going to be the subject of our conversation next week, so not a whole lot about that this morning. But Piper goes on to say, nothing but the glory and the beauty of God can hold the lusts of the heart in their proper orbit. Nothing else has enough gravity. God's glory is of such immense weight that when he is at the center of your life, everything else stays in its proper place. But when you trade him out with light satellites of your own making, which have no gravitational pull, they have no power to hold anything in orbit. And so everything just becomes disordered and chaotic and out of control. The word in verse 24 used to to describe desire or lust there is the word epithumia. It's a word that literally means excessive desire, super desire, burnout level desire, over the top lust and desire. It's the language of addiction, of losing control, and then escalation. All that's here until you get down to verse 32. That we are in such denial, Paul says here, we are so committed to pushing down the truth that even though our conscience condemns us, We know we're doing wrong. Instead of admitting the truth about that to ourselves, we double down on the bet by beginning to not only embrace the things we know to be wrong, but by beginning to applaud people when they do things that we know and they know are wrong. And then brazenly celebrating those who flaunt their make-believe independence of God. When we corporately begin to do this, You end up with a society that looks and feels like the long list of sins here at the end of the chapter. It's not necessary to read them all one by one and describe them, or to describe them all, but let's just read them again because that is Paul's purpose, that we feel the collective force of what happens to a group of people, a society, when when these things get so out of control. So beginning in verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That one always surprises me. Kids, that's a big deal. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Man, isn't that what the world feels like these days? 
Well, what is God's response? I gotta get to, I gotta get to the close of this. What is God's response? And in verse 18, we see very clearly Paul saying that God's response is this doctrine we've already talked about in detail. Verse 18, that the wrath of God is coming against. The wrath of God is being revealed against all of this unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And what we see there is that God's wrath is not a feeling, it's an action. It is God coming against evil. His absolute hatred to all that is opposed to the flourishing of those he loves That anger, we said last week, isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. Anger is the only appropriate moral response to evil. So God responds in wrath. But here's what I want you to see, and here's the lesson this morning that we have to take away from this. I want you to see not only that God responds in wrath, but I want you to see what Paul's teaching us is that the conditions themselves that we've been describing and that he describes all throughout this passage are, in fact, themselves an expression of his wrath. We're not only headed for the wrath of God, we're under wrath. Now, the wrath of God being revealed is a present tense construction. It doesn't just refer to the future, to the day of judgment at the end of time. Paul is saying, look around. Do you see how bad things are? Do you see how out of control society has become? Do you see all of the moral subjectivism? Do you see the idolatry and the addiction and the escalation of evil? Do you see all of that? That is the wrath of God. There's an important phrase that's repeated three times in in these verses that Paul gives as an explanation for what he's describing. He says over and over again, God gave them over. Did you notice that? God gave them over. Verse 24, God gave them up or God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then lastly, verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind. What does this mean? It means... That God's love for the world partly consists in what Christian theologians have called restraining grace. That the world is pretty bad, but it's not nearly as bad as it could be because God is constantly holding back evil. Evil's on a leash. But in this case, as an act of judgment, God takes the leash off. And he allows people to go on unhindered into the sinful desires and cravings of their hearts. C.S. Lewis, of course, has a pithy statement about this. He says, there are, in the end, two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. And that is his concept of judgment and ultimately hell, that God is always holding us back from our worst. He's thwarting our plans. He's getting in the way and messing things up, and we get mad at him when he does this. We're prone to look at those times and think, why does God hate me? Why won't he just let me have what I want? Why does he do this? Why doesn't he do this for me? And, And what we learn here is it's all wrong, that God is doing that because he loves you, not because he hates you. If he hated you, he would let you have all the things you wanted. Bad parents give their kids everything they want. Good parents know that the kids lack the maturity and wisdom to want the right things. That's really the, great, the, the analogy of parenting. It's not a good parenting strategy to always swoop in at the last minute and save your kids. Sometimes, ask their teachers. Sometimes, when they've made foolish decisions against your advice, you have to let them suffer the consequences of their actions. You have to give them over to the reaping of what they've been sowing so they can learn the lesson. And that is what Paul's describing. This is a judicial act. 
It's always in response to some previous action on the part of man. So verse 24 again, you'll look there. It says, therefore, in other words, because of or in response to the idolatry of verses 23 and 24, God gave them over. Again, verse 26, for this reason. So he's connecting previous action on the part of men. Verse 28, since they did not acknowledge God, he gave them up. And that is the scariest thing of all. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan pastor in New England, preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It is a terrifying sermon. And I'm not usually one to disagree with Jonathan Edwards, but what is truly terrifying, I would say, to turn the phrase, is not to be a sinner in the hands of an angry God, but actually to be a sinner out of the hands of an angry God. To have God take his hands off of you and give you over to yourself, that is the scariest thing of all. It's no secret that I'm a big C.S. Lewis nerd, and so one of the places he's helped me the most is in the way he describes hell. He says it's a place where the doors are locked on the inside, not necessarily on the outside. Where people are not held against their will, but the place itself is the very expression of their deepest sinful desires. Commenting on that phrase, he writes, listen to these words, he says, I do not mean that there are souls there that may not wish to come out of hell, but that certainly do not will even the first preliminary stages of that self-abandonment through which alone the soul can reach any good. They enjoy forever, listen, this is just chilling, he says, they enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved, just as the blessed forever submitting to obedience, become through all eternity more and more free. The damned are truly, the truly successful, rebels to the end. God must not send us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up which will of itself become hell unless it's nipped in the bud. That's scary. And the purpose of the passage is to show you that the, hor- the horrors of life without God, the radioactive fallout of exchanging the glory of God with some other thing. Now, this is the part of the sermon where I would usually turn the corner and try to take us to the gospel and make everything nice and wrapped up with a little bow tie at the end. And sometimes I wonder if doing that just doesn't make us forget the horror at the beginning of the sermon and to not sit with it. So I'm relying on the other parts of the liturgy to anchor us in gospel reality this morning because I believe Paul wants us to sit here, and so I want us to sit here too. But let me just give you just a reminder to make myself feel better because I need, I need a little hope here too. And here would be my reminder to you. It's not in the text, but the Bible is clear in places like Romans 8, for example, that this giving us over to our own desires, which is terribly frightening, which inevitably leads to ruin, is a strategy of love. God's anger and his discipline are are a sign of his love. The God of wrath is the God of the cross. Amen? Can I say that again? The God of wrath is the God of the cross. Don't forget that. The cross of Jesus Christ reconciles God's wrath with his love. It is an expression of his wrath against sin and his love for sinners at the same time. On the cross, this is the good news of our faith. On the cross, Jesus bore the curse of God's wrath. The Apostles' Creed says that he descended into hell. That he endured the full measure of God's wrath against sin in our place. Now you put those two things together. The threat of what is being, of being brought to our attention here in this text with the beauty of what God has done for us in Jesus on the cross. And together they show you that you should never be afraid of being in his hands. That the really scary thing is to be out of his hands and without God and without hope in the world as the Bible says it. So let me just, let me just close with this. Non-Christians, if you're here and you're not a believer, if you're here and you don't know what you believe, if you're here and 
your life sliding away from him and towards a life of your own making and doing, can I just plead with you, put yourself in his hands. Paul is after repentance. He wants you to see the grave danger you're in and turn away from the tyranny of self and turn to God. Let me say to you, if you're not a believer, God is not the cause of the pain and misery in your life. It's because you've been trying to do it without him that you're in all the trouble you're in. Stop trying to get away from him. And turn and instead say, please put your hands on me and rescue me from myself. That's the movement of faith. But if you're here and you're a believer, if you're a Christian, can I say something to you too? Let me say to you, don't fight him when he puts his hands on you. That shouldn't scare you. What should really scare you is if, if he ever takes his hand off. If God ever stops making it hard, that should really scare you. He disciplines those he loves, the Bible says. Hebrews says, look at this passage and see what could become of your life if he was to ever take his hands off of you and rejoice in the ways that he comes as a father to discipline and and prune you. This is what he's rescued you from, and the rescue comes through pain and frustration, through thwarting, through discipline. Those are the signs that he has put his hands on you. And if your faith is in him, remember, Jesus said, the Father who has given you to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch you out of his hands. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, these are heavy, heavy things. They're hard. They're scary. They're confusing. There's emotion wrapped up in all of this because we all are full of thoughts of ourselves, and not only ourselves, but the people that we love, and worrying, and being scared for them and and so we do need we do need you to come and help us help us to remember and lean into the fact that our sin is great but your mercy is greater lean into all of the reality of what the bible reveals to be uh, the way that you have acted not just in wrath but on the backside of that in love and sending jesus christ for you so loved the world that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life he was not sent into the world to condemn the world but that through him the world might be saved that is the hope of the gospel and so help us for ourselves and for our and for the sake of the ones that we love help us to lean into the promise of those verses and in some way to sing of your great mercy of your great name, of the great work that you've done done in Jesus, to turn away from all the ways we try to keep our lives in our own hands to our destruction and to give ourselves over to you that you might not give give us over to ourselves. You are worthy of every yes. And so come and subdue our hearts to you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may ask, how do we talk about such things and then sing at the end of the service and the answer is because as Paul works out these truths in chapter 8 verse 1 of this book he's going to go to say kind of climactically uh, that because of the work of Jesus there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus but it is the but it it is the experience of the reality of that condemnation and having to work through it to to get outside of ourselves to to be condemned in ourselves that we might look to Jesus that brings us into the freedom and the glory and the grace and the beauty of the gospel and so we can always end there uh, because no matter what God has threatened Jesus Christ has come 
He has died in our place. He's been raised from the dead. He is seated in the heavens. He has sent the Holy Spirit, and now he sends us out, promising that no matter what we go to do, he goes with us. That is what these words mean. And so if your faith is in Jesus, you rest beneath the smile of the Father because of the work that he has done. Don't go living as if there's a cloud of judgment over your life. If your faith is in him, the clouds have parted and the sun is shining. Receive the promise of these words then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forever. Amen. Go in his peace.